Morning, Bridge family. Good to see you today. Everybody doing all right? Are you sure? <laughs> nice. It's good to see you in church this morning. We trust that you're having a good day. I know it was a little bit gloomy outside this morning, but it's always sunny in the house of God. That was really cheesy, wasn't it? <laughs> hey, but seriously, I, I believe that God has good things in store for us today, and it's good to get to spend Sunday morning with you. Hey, are you happy to be in the house of God this morning? Come on. Awesome. Our worship team did fantastic, and it's funny because now when we, when we dismiss Bridge Youth to go to youth on Sunday mornings, um, we had a guest speaker here two weeks ago, Joel Holm, and he told our staff, he said, I've never got up to speak and seen a mass exodus of people and got so excited about it. And it's true because we're really, really proud of what's happened with Bridge Youth. So parents, students, thank you for being a part of Bridge Youth and seeing them grow together on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. That's an awesome thing. And if you're new to the bridge, I just want to double what we said in church news and say welcome. Thank you for being here today. We encourage you, invite you to come to the Info Center after the service. Just stop by, say hi. Our team would love to meet you. You can hang out and meet some of the awesome people that call the bridge home. We hope that you feel at home today and that you feel welcome, feel like you're a part of the family. So thank you for being here today. If you're regular here at the bridge. Why don't we just put our hands together and welcome all of our guests to church today. Awesome. If you got your Bible, would you meet me in Mark chapter 2? I have the privilege of getting to share with you today. Again, my name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here at the bridge and we're grateful that you're here. But Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be at today in scripture and I want to bring you a message called copy and paste Christianity. Copy and paste Christianity. And I want to start out by simply saying this to you. It has never been the plan, the purpose, the will of God that we would go through life expecting God to do the same old things in our life, but in fact that we would look ahead expecting and believing and asking God to do new things in and through our lives. And it's interesting because, you know, God is never changing. He's always the same. His promises are true and as good today as they were when we look back to the days of the Bible. And so we look at God, even though he is never changing, we live in a world that is ever changing. And as people, we recognize that the world is continually changing. Things are continually moving forward. And as a result, God wants to do new things in the life of his people to see new people come into the kingdom of God and accomplish his plan and his purpose on the earth. Can somebody say amen to that. <laughs> and it's really important that we never fall into the trap of walking through copy and paste Christianity or copy and paste religion. In fact, Jesus dealt with people who were walking through this themselves and he challenged what was going on in their life. And I want to look at one specific passage of scripture that talks about this and looks at this today and it's found in Mark chapter 2. So let's read real quick from verse 18 of Mark 2. It says, the disciples of John, and this is speaking of John the Baptist, of John the Baptist and the Pharisees, so the disciples of John the Baptist and disciples of the Pharisees were fasting. And then they came and said to Jesus, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the new wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. 
I grew up in the 80s and 90s. Is anybody with me? All right. I feel like I'm amongst friends and family today. And growing up in the 80s and 90s, I can remember a time when not everybody had a computer in their house. And obviously for me, I'm 40 years old, and for me growing up, I didn't grow up with a phone or a tablet in my hands. I don't remember my parents having a computer in our house until I was probably in about the seventh grade. And so for a lot of the people who are a lot younger than me, there's a lot of stuff that's just the norm that we have in our life today. And for my kids, they're going to grow up different. There will be a lot of things that they're just accustomed to that we were not accustomed to when I was growing up. And each generation deals with this. But I remember when computers became the norm in our lives and in our homes, and I think it was in eighth grade that I was in a computer lab class. And my teacher, his name was Mr. Lawrence, and he taught us how to use Microsoft software. Now, this, of course, was the 90s when Microsoft was the thing. Apple had yet to kind of be reborn and boom the way that they did a few years later. And so everybody was using Microsoft software in everything that they did. And I remember my teacher teaching us how to make Word documents and PDFs and Excel spreadsheets. And as I was even thinking about this, I was reminded that to this day, if you, had, if you asked me to make an Excel spreadsheet, I probably still couldn't do it. And what's funny is you, probably like me, put that on your resume and said, I am fluent in Excel even though I knew nothing about it. Jesus, forgive me. But the point is this. I will never forget the day that my teacher, Mr. Lawrence, taught us about this amazing new feature that we weren't aware of called copy and paste. Because he taught us how to open multiple documents. I could open one document that was for one assignment from one class and then open another document for another assignment in another class. And if there was anything I was doing that would overlap or if I wanted to take from one document and put it in the other, I could copy and paste into the new document. And now listen, because this is going to date me, but some of you will remember this. If you wanted to copy and paste in the old days of Microsoft, what did you do? You went in, you highlighted and right-clicked. And then you click on copy, and then you go to your new document, and you right-click, and you hit paste, and boom, it populates magically. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is an amazing tool. It saves me time and energy and effort. And if I need something in this new document that I already have over here, I don't have to type it back out again. I don't have to go and waste my time by doing it for a second time. I can just hit copy and paste, and boom, there it is. Amazing tool. But what's funny is... A few years later, I remember when I got into college, I was taking another computer lab, and we had a teacher, a professor in this class who was sitting there with us, and he says, now listen, I know that all of you are proficient in the software that we're using in this class, and by this time, we weren't using dial-up internet anymore, okay? Like internet speeds had jumped, and all of us in that computer lab could be on the internet, here we go, at the same time. Amazing stuff. Real progress happened in our lifetime. It's amazing. I was in eighth grade like in 1994, okay, so we had dial-up even if we had internet at our school. But then by the time we get to college, internet is, is very much available to everybody in one room at the same speed simultaneously. And I remember as we were walking through some of the exercises that our professor was, was teaching us, she said something really interesting. She said, you know, all of you are proficient in this software. You know how to use it. You've been turning in papers, creating documents with this software for a long time. But now that the Internet is becoming so much more accessible and easy to use and there's so much more information that's on it, you need to be warned not to fall into the trap of copy and paste plagiarism. And then she explained to us, she said, here's the deal. We all know what plagiarism is. It's where you take something that somebody else created and use it for yourself and attribute it to yourself as if it was your own. It's dishonesty, really. It's stealing. It's lying, if we're just being straight to the point. 
She said, and here's the thing, plagiarism is bad. She goes, but it's not the worst thing that you've done if you choose to do copy and paste plagiarism. She said, you can take an answer or a paper that somebody else has created and turn it in and think that that's sufficient. And you might get away with plagiarism. She said, but the problem is you will have hurt yourself because you wouldn't have helped yourself to develop and grow into the person that you need to become because while you might have turned in the answer, you might not have discovered how to get to that solution. You might not have discovered how to problem solve in order to get to that solution or to get to that answer. She said, so don't fall into the trap of plagiarism. Plagiarism is wrong. She said, but your development is more important. Do the work. Get the answers. Learn to solve the problems so that one day you can put this stuff to use for yourself and you can become a functioning adult in society. And that was a valuable lesson. I think parents should all be able to say, yeah, I hope my kid would do the right thing and that they would learn those lessons as well. What's funny about it is this idea of copy and paste plagiarism stunts my growth and my development because I choose not to do the work to grow and develop when it comes to problem solving. And as I thought back about this, it occurred to me that there are times in my walk with God, in my Christian life, and in my Christian walk where I can simply rely on and lean on the things that somebody else has shown me how to do or told me how to do, but maybe not grow in my own walk with God. I'm simply leaning on how they've done things, and I'm walking out a lifestyle of copy and paste Christianity. Maybe somebody taught me how to follow Christ in their way, but that's not the best way for me. Maybe I grew up going to church, seeing my parents play, being familiar with praise and worship and music and reading the Bible and reading family devotions, and I saw that pattern unfold, and those were all good things, but I never learned how to do it for myself, so instead I just took what somebody else gave me, not understanding why they did it, and tried to make it my own, and I haven't grown in my walk with God. I want to say this right up front today. God does not want you and I to get stuck in copy and paste Christianity. He wants us to get to know him so that we can grow in him and become everything that he's called us to be. Jesus has an encounter with an interesting group of people in Mark chapter 2 who come to him and they ask him a very specific question. And I want to talk about this a little bit because they come to Jesus and they talk about fasting. Fasting is the topic of conversation that they bring to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't want to talk about fasting with them. He wants to go deeper and talk about the deeper issues that are going on in their lives and in their hearts. And when they come to Jesus, they're bringing to him a practice. They're bringing to him a ritual and a pattern. And they're saying, Jesus, the people that we follow, the Pharisees and John the Baptist, they've taught us to fast and we do this. But your disciples don't do it. And what Jesus recognizes in their life is that they have taken on a form of copy and paste religion where they're doing what they've been told, but they don't understand why they do it. And all of us have to come to a place in our walk with God where we stop and we take an inventory of our life, of our patterns, of our rituals, of the things that we do on a regular basis without even thinking, and we have to ask ourselves the question, why do I do this? Am I married to the pattern or am I focusing on the person, Jesus, who's the point of the whole exercise? Let me say that one more time. Am I stuck with the pattern, not asking why I do this? Or am I pursuing the person, which is Jesus, who's the point of the whole exercise? So I want to look at this today because if we're not going to get caught up in, counter or in uh, copy and paste Christianity, then we have to make sure that our walk with God is continually staying fresh. So I want to ask you some questions today. But before we do that, let's get some context on this conversation. What's interesting about this is that when I first read this, I skipped through this very quickly the other day and just kind of assumed in my mind that what was happening here was Jesus was having a conversation with the Pharisees. But that's not what it was. 
Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples of the Pharisees and some disciples of John the Baptist. Now let's talk about the relationship, the context between these three groups. Jesus had handpicked his disciples. He said, come and follow me. They walked away from everything to come and follow him. And they weren't doing things like these other groups of disciples were. So first, let's start with the disciples of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the uber-elite religious people, the people who kind of saw themselves as being better than everybody else. And in their religiosity, what they did was not ask for everybody else to be like God. They asked for everybody else to be like them. And Jesus actually at one point in Scripture looks at the Pharisees and he calls them whitewashed tombs. He said, you look great on the outside. You're like whitewashed tombs, but on the inside you're full of dead man's bones. That was what Jesus said about these uber-religious elitists. And when Jesus looked at them and said that, really what he was saying was, self-righteousness is more important to you than actual inner righteousness. You're more concerned about how you look on the outside than what's really going on on the inside. So you have to understand that these disciples of the Pharisees, these were probably your seminary students of the day, the uber-theological ones who wanted to come off as being righteous and superior to everybody else, and so they followed the Pharisees. Now, because they followed the Pharisees, it's very likely that they would not have had a good view of Jesus because the Pharisees were always on Jesus' case. They were always criticizing him and always giving him a hard time, and Jesus had many confrontational moments with the Pharisees. But then you have another group, and this is the the disciples or the followers of John the Baptist. And the, the Pharisees' disciples would have looked down upon the disciples of John the Baptist for one really simple reason. Because John the Baptist was a weird dude. John the Baptist lived on the outskirts of town. He kind of stayed to himself out in the wilderness with his small group of disciples. Scripture says that he was the voice crying in the wilderness, the one who brought about this message of repentance. He was the forerunner that would come before Jesus. He ate locusts and wild honey. He looked very much unkept. And when the Pharisees and their disciples saw John the Baptist and his disciples, they would have looked down upon them for their appearance. But there was something about John the Baptist that was interesting to those disciples because they said, we don't want to be like the Pharisees, so we're going to follow John. He's different, he's unkept, he's kind of wild, and we kind of like that. We think that's cool. So these are really interesting groups of people. And John the Baptist's followers would have had a negative view of the Pharisees' followers because John the Baptist himself once said of the Pharisees that they are like a brood of vipers which means they entrap and ensnare people in order to make them sin, in order to catch them so that they can point out their unrighteousness and condemn them and say, you're not as good as we are. You don't live up to the same standard that we do. So John the Baptist and his disciples had conflict with the Pharisees and their disciples. The Pharisees and their disciples had conflict with John the Baptist and his disciples, and they all had issues with Jesus and his disciples. Interesting group of people. And when they all come together, what you would expect is this explosion and this argument. But instead, Jesus is incredibly kind and he's incredibly cordial during this discussion that takes place. And I think the reason why is because Jesus understands he's not there to argue with the Pharisees. And he's not there to point out the differences between him and John the Baptist. He's here to throw out a lifeline to these other disciples and show them that there's a better way and that God is doing a new thing in the earth. So I want to walk through this passage of Scripture with you today. And if we're not going to get caught up in copy and paste Christianity, then there's some things that we need to do to keep our walk with God fresh. So here's some questions I want to ask you. Three questions from this passage that will help us grow a fresh relationship with God. Here's number one if you're taking notes. Question number one. Why do we do what we do? 
as Christians, why do we do what we do? I mean, think about the things that we do in our Christian walk. We go to church, we pray, we worship, sometimes we might fast. There are all kinds of different things that we do in our Christian walk. Maybe we have devotional time, reading of our Bible, things that we do together as a family to grow in our walk with God. There are things that we do, but how many things in our life do we do without ever stopping to ask why we do those things? Because in this moment, when they come to Jesus and say, why don't your disciples fast, it's almost as if Jesus is replying to them and saying to them, well, let me ask you a question. What are you fasting for? And Jesus begins to paint this picture about the bridegroom coming for the bride. Now, we understand as Christians that Jesus was the Son of God sent from heaven as the bridegroom to this earth to go and capture his bride, which is the church, or all who would believe. And Jesus says, the bridegroom is here, yet you're fasting. The reason why my disciples aren't fasting is because when it's a time, a wedding picture that he's painting, when it's a time of celebration, you don't need to fast, you need to celebrate. In other words, your Redeemer, your Messiah has come. If you're fasting, what are you fasting for? Because chances are, I'm the answer to the thing that you're fasting for. And Jesus challenges them in this way. And when he paints this picture of the bridegroom coming for their bride, they're confronted with this reality that they have to determine who Jesus really is. And Jesus' disciples are following him because they believe that he might be the Messiah. And so when they come to Jesus, Jesus acknowledges the conversation about fasting, but he wants to go a whole lot deeper. He wants to see what else is going on in their life because he recognizes that they're caught up in copy and paste religion. How often do we go through life or our Christian walk doing things without ever stopping and asking the question, why do I do this? I want to give you a couple examples of this. In Matthew chapter 26, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Scripture tells us that Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Many of you will know the story very well. Before he's betrayed, it's after the Last Supper, he's praying in the garden. Scripture says that Jesus becomes sorrowful almost to the point of death, as in he knows in an agonizing way that the cross is nearing and what's about to happen in front of him is going to be incredibly difficult. And so he goes to the garden and he's praying. And Scripture says that he takes with him Peter, James, and John, who were his closest friends, his companions. Out of that group, they were the closest ones. And so he tells them to watch and to pray. So he leaves them there. Jesus walks away. And this is the moment he has the hard conversation with God, his father, and he says, God, if there's another way, if this cup can pass by me, then I would like for that to happen. But not my will, your will be done. And so in an agonizing fashion, he's hurting knowing that the next few days are going to be difficult. He needs support. He needs his friends. He needs these disciples, these companions to stand with him and pray with him and watch with him. And he turns around to go back to him, and what does he find? They're asleep. The hour was late. They're asleep there in the garden. And Jesus runs over, and I picture Jesus grabbing him and waking him up and saying, Guys, wake up. What are you doing? This is my darkest hour. This is the most difficult thing I've ever gone through. And I see this hard thing that's in front of me. It's really hard to walk this out by myself. And Jesus looks out at me and says, Could you not tarry one hour? Could you not pray for one single hour? Could you not stand with me? And so there's a very important specific context that happens here where Jesus is talking to his friends who he needs to stand with him and support him in his most troubling hours. But here's the point I want to make to you. During the 80s and the 90s, there were all kinds of big ministries that were launched out of this passage where people took it and said, do you know what this means? This means that every day we should pray for one hour because Jesus said, could you tarry not for one hour? 
And I remember actually having a literal conversation with my dad. And for those of you who don't know this, Pastor Gary is my dad. But my dad told me, he said, I remember churches all over America were having these one-hour prayer services every morning at 5 a.m. or at 6 a.m. And the pastors would stand up and say, well, bless God, the scripture says that we should be able to tarry for one hour and pray. So we're going to do prayer service every morning at 5 a.m. or at 6 a.m. And if you're a strong man of God or if you're a strong woman of God, you need to be there. And my dad was like, okay, so I went. And I went the day after that, and I went the day after that. He goes, and you know what happened? I got tired of going to the church at 5 a.m. and praying for an hour. I didn't like it. It wasn't my thing. It wasn't for me. And can I be really honest with you? If I stood here in front of all of you today and I said, you're not really a strong woman or man of God. If you can't come and pray at the church for one hour at 6 a.m., you know what would happen? You would all leave the church. Because it's taking one thing, it's taking one custom, it's taking one pattern and applying it to life and saying Christianity can just be copy and paste where if you just take this pattern, you'll be good with God. But that's not at all what that passage is talking about. It doesn't mean that it's bad to pray for an hour a day. I think that's a good thing. How many would agree? But it's saying you don't have to take this copy and paste pattern and fall in love with it and make it your practice every single day. In fact, I would go a step further and say this. Jesus confronted these guys when they asked this question, and he said, the bridegroom is here. So what are you fasting for? What are you praying for? Because chances are I'm the answer. And here's the thing I want to say to you. Don't fall in love with the patterns of Christianity. Fall in love with the person who was at the center of Christianity, and that is Christ. And it will open your life up to the new things that God wants to do in and through your life and keep your Christian walk fresh. This is funny because I got to thinking about this and it reminded me of Psalm chapter 63. Many of you will know this psalm also because, again, this is one of those things that I felt like somewhere along the way someone put this undue pressure on me. In Psalm 63, David said these words. He said, Oh God, you are my God, and early in the morning will I rise to seek you. And so there are people out there that take that verse of Scripture and say, well, you don't have a real relationship with God if you're not getting up before the sun and before the rooster crows and praying for an hour and reading your word and journaling and dancing around the house and praising the Lord. If you're not doing all that stuff early in the morning, first thing before everything else, then you don't really have a strong relationship with God. Can I tell you something? That's a word of condemnation if you don't like getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Like how many of you right now would say, Zach, don't even try to wake me up before 6.30? Can I be honest with you and just give you some really good news if that's you? God's not asking that of you. That was what David did. That was what David did. Just because David did it doesn't mean it's the exact way that you need to do it. You need to find the way that works best for you. And don't take on a form of copy and paste Christianity. Find the relationship with Jesus that is yours and don't try to make it like somebody else. Everybody with me this morning? I'm not saying any of this to be a word of condemnation. If you do it those ways, that's great if it works for you. If that pattern that's been set out in Scripture works perfect for you, then that's awesome. Here's the deal. I'm an early riser. So I could get up early and do that. Like, that makes sense for me. Now, we got a puppy not long ago, and he wakes up earlier than I do. So that's thrown a wrench into my plan. And then by the time I get up with him, the kids follow shortly thereafter. So I've had to readjust. But guess what? It's not a one-size-fits-all thing. It's not copy-and-paste Christianity. I'm not focused on the pattern. I'm focused on the person. Why do we do what we do? Is it because somebody else told us to do it that way? Or is it because God is wanting to do something new and fresh through our lives? We have to stop and ask ourselves that question. So why do we do what we do? Here's a second question to ask yourself. 
to keep your relationship with God and your walk with God fresh. Number two, am I forcing this to fit? Am I forcing this to fit? And I'll explain more about what I mean by this in just a moment. But look at what Jesus said again, talking about fasting in verse number 21. When they asked him why his disciples didn't fast, he says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. Now, what's he saying here? He's literally talking about a patch of cloth or on a garment. If you had a hole in your garment, you would take another patch of cloth and put it over that hole. But you and I both know that when you wash your clothes, whether you hang them up to dry or you put them in the dryer, they they tend to shrink up a little bit. And over time, they shrink to a point where they will not shrink anymore. So if you take an old cloth that has a hole in it and you use a cloth patch that has never been shrunk to put on there, the first time you wash it and leave it out to dry, it's going to shrink up and create a bigger problem for the hole that originally existed. Now that's the literal illustration of what Jesus is talking about there, but here's the point. They say, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus literally is looking back at them and what he's basically saying is, there's a new thing that my disciples are being called to and I'm not going to take them and throw them into the old thing and expect them to bring about a new result. Because Jesus knew that when his work on earth was finished, it was these disciples who were following him that were going to go and take forth the ministry and the message of the cross and the resurrection. And Jesus says, I'm not going to throw you in your new walk with God into the old pattern of old Judaism. No, I got something new for you. And I don't want to put you in a situation where you're going to fail and it's going to mess up the ministry that I came here to create. Instead, I'm going to pour out your lives into something new and I'm going to call you to do something different because God doesn't want to just do the same old thing. He wants to do new things in and through your life. And that was the purpose that God had for his disciples, for Jesus' disciples. Now, let's go a little bit deeper here. Uh, In 1 Samuel chapter 17, there's a really great illustration of this. Because we all know the story of David and Goliath. David goes out to visit his brothers on the battlefield to bring them some food from their father. And when he gets there, what does he discover? There's not just a bunch of people and soldiers out there on that battlefield, but instead there's a giant across the way who's taunting the armies of Israel. Now on the surface, David seems to be unfit for battle. He's not a soldier. He's not a person who's among Israelites' army there. But he shows up, and what he discovers is it's not just a physical battle. This is a spiritual battle, which means that David is fit to fight. And there's something about this battle that's calling his name. And when he gets out there, imagine all these soldiers who are standing there, and it seems as though they would be the ones to go and fight Goliath, but they're all afraid to fight. And when David shows up, the things that Goliath are saying just hits him different, and he realizes this is a spiritual battle, and I am willing to fight it. But what happens? David speaks up, and he says, I'll go fight the giant. And what does the king do? If you know the story, what does the king do? He says, whoa, 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 hold on. First, take my armor. Take my weapons. Take the king's armor with you so that you can go and fight the giant. But what's funny about it is that the scripture tells us that Saul stood head and shoulders above all of Israel. And when David got there, he wasn't Saul's size. He wasn't the king. He had his own way of fighting. He had his own way of training. And David looks back at King Saul and he says, listen, I can't take your armor because it doesn't fit me. That's not my style. That's not how I fight. I know my way of fighting. It's with this sling and these stones, and I'm willing to go and do it my way because this is the way that God has trained me. This is the way that God has wired me. This is the experience that God has given me, and I can only go and do it in my way. I think for a lot of us, one of the things that happens in our Christian walk, and I'll talk for a moment specifically to people like me that grew up in church, generationally there tends to always be this disconnect where the generation before us hands us a style of doing church that isn't what we want. 
The music isn't what we like. We don't want to wear suits and ties to church. Maybe there are things about certain church practices that we look at and we're like, why do we do that? I don't want that. That's not really for me. That style isn't for me. And David shows up onto the battlefield and he needs to go and fight this giant. He's got it in his heart to go and do something great for God. And here's King Saul burdening him with another way of doing things. And I want to say this to you today, that the kingdom of God is not God trying to force you into something that you don't fit. The kingdom of God is God using you with your unique gifts and talents and abilities to do the things that God has wired you to do. And God doesn't want to force you to fit. He wants you to fit where you will be fulfilled according to the gifts that he has given you. Does that make sense to everybody this morning? I love the way that Matthew 11 talks about Jesus putting his yoke and his burden upon us. Jesus said these words, Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for, my, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's cool about this is that I see this generational picture where new Christians continually come through church and we look at what the previous generation wants to give us and sometimes it's not what we want because it doesn't seem to fit us. But Jesus says, I'm not expecting you to take on somebody else's burden. I'm telling you to take on my yoke and my burden because it's easy and it's light. It's one size fits all. And the thing I've called you to, I will equip you with so that you can be fulfilled in the fit. I've gifted you, I've given you talents, I've given you abilities, and I've given you a calling. And I'm not asking you to do it like somebody else. I'm asking you to do it the way that I wired you to do it. And can I tell you something today? There's a place in the kingdom of God for you, for your skills, for your abilities, and for your talents. Because God wired you the way you are for a reason. And how dare we ever get to a place in church life where we say, well, it always has to be the way we used to do it. And if we can't do it that way anymore, then there's no room for you. No, let me tell you something. There's always room for every new generation in the house of God. Because God wants to do new things with every new generation that walks on planet earth. Amen? I just want to reiterate this really quick because I think this will hit home. I think it's interesting. You know, we talked about why do we do what we do. I think it's interesting. Jesus didn't say, come to church, all you who labor and are heavy laden. He said, come to me. So here's the question. Does that mean that church isn't important? Oh, no. Scripture says that Jesus' custom was to be in the house of God. And that means that whether I'm on staff at the Bridge Church or not, it's my, it should be my custom to be in the house of God, too. It will be my commitment. This place is valuable. When we come together, there's value in our gathering. Never, ever, ever devalue the gathering of the saints. But the bigger point I want to make to you is simply this. Sometimes we can make it all about the pattern and not about the person. See, the church of Jesus Christ has always been God's plan and God's pattern, but Jesus will always be the point. So if I have Jesus in my heart, it doesn't mean I forsake the church. It doesn't mean I forsake the gathering. No, it means that those things help point me to God's plan for my life, which is Jesus, who is the purpose. Amen? Last thing I want to say about this. I think, again, every generation, when it comes to our gifts and our talents and our abilities, sometimes we can walk in and feel like, the fit is just being forced. I don't know if this is me. It seems like there's an old way of doing things sometimes in the church that has a hard time transitioning into the future. And I'll never forget when I was in Bible college in 2008, I, I spent a year in Bible college in Australia at one of the biggest churches in the world. And 
There was this one night where there was a pastor who was at this, one of the pastors, staff pastors at the church that was going to be leaving. He was going overseas to another nation to plant another campus of that church. And so he was up there on that platform that night, and they were going to honor that pastor and send him off, pray for him and his family. And they were going to honor him by having some people come up and share some kind words about him. And they said, hey, we want to welcome this family up to the platform. And they all came up there, and they said, we have a few people that want to come up and share. And right there in that moment, some of the most famous, recognizable leaders in the world of worship, singers, songwriters, walked up and stood on that stage. And it was like a who's who of people in church music, church worship world. And they stood up there with that guy, and so much of those people who were on that platform were people that have kind of helped to shape what the church looks like today and what it sounds like and how we do church. And one by one, they all shared to honor this pastor, and the one thing that stood out to me was they said, you know, 10 years ago when we were in your youth group, they said, you used to always ask us this question. You would say, how long in the kingdom of God, how long will the brightest minds and the most creative people go to the corporate world to go and build big corporations and build big brands rather than investing their life in the church of Jesus Christ and in the kingdom of God? He said, how long will it happen? How long will you invest your life in the corporate world or building other people's brands rather than pouring your life into the church? And he challenged them with that all those years over and over throughout their years of youth group. And what was funny was that group of people that were his students in his youth group went on to be some of the most influential people in the church world today, still writing some of the most famous music that we sing in our churches every Sunday all around the world. And I stood there that day thinking, it's possible to empower the next generation and tell them that there's a place for them in the church of Jesus Christ. There's a place for your gifts. There's a place for your talents. There's a place for your abilities. Listen, if you're here and mom and dad raised you in church, but at some point in your life there was a big disconnect because you just felt like, this isn't for me. I'm not so sure that I fit. It was never God's will that your fit would be forced. He wants you to fit where you will be fulfilled using the gifts and the talents and the abilities that he has given you. And don't let anybody try to push you out because the way you do it is wrong. The way you do it isn't wrong. It's the way that God wired you to do it. And I want to tell you something, there's room in the kingdom of God for your gifts. Has anybody ever had a job where you felt like you were the square peg in the round hole? They're just continually trying to get me to do this thing and I hate it, I'm not good at it. In the kingdom of God, God wants you to use your gifts to find fulfillment, not be forced to fit. There is room for you and your abilities in the kingdom of God. Because God continually wants to do new things in and through his people. Amen. I've got to hurry to finish because I'm almost out of time. But here's the third question I want to ask you. How do we keep our relationship and our walk with God fresh? Third question. Is my old wineskin limiting the outpouring of God's new wine? Is my old wineskin limiting the outpouring of God's new wine? In verse 22, when Jesus is talking about fasting and he starts to get into the deeper issue, He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to do a new work through these disciples. Now, interestingly enough, today we don't talk about wineskins the way that Jesus would have in his day. But what they did when they created the wine was they would take the skin off of an animal, like literally the hide of an animal, be sewn and woven together, and they would pour the juice that would to be fermented and become wine into that wineskin. And as it fermented, it would grow and become thicker and expand, and that wineskin could only hold up if it was new and it was strong. 
And what Jesus was saying is, I'm going to do a new thing in and through these people, but I can't do it if they're going to be stuck in old ways and in old patterns. When I read through this, I was challenged because I had to stop and ask myself, are there old wineskins that I've allowed to remain in my life that are blocking the outpouring of God's new wine in and through my life? I'll give you a couple of examples of these. I think one of the, one of the things that can often be an old wineskin that stops the pouring out of God's new wine can be our old ways of thinking old thought patterns that we have in our life that God wants to change when we come into his family. Our founding pastor, Pastor Roger, used to say, you got to get rid of that stinking thinking. And he was pretty old school, but I love it because he was right. We have to change our mind. And what's so funny about it is that Romans 12 actually says this. It says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. Renewing. God wants to do new things in your mind to break out those old wineskins so that he can pour something new into your life and through your life. And God wants to change the way that we think. That word conformed, con, literally means to go with. Trans means to go across or against. God's saying, I don't want you to think the way the world thinks. I want to transform the way you think so that you can step into the good things, the new things that I have for your life. I want to do great things through you, but you have to change the way you think. What about this old wineskin? What about our belief systems? Is it possible that some of our belief systems have been formed because of what other people told us rather than what God has spoken to us through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit? I remember like 14, 15 years ago, I was sitting in a, in a church service in my home church, and we had a guest minister, and when he was speaking that day, he said this. He goes, today, I want to bring you a message called, and pardon the crude reference, but he said, I want to bring you a message called Dealing with Your B.S., in church, and we're all like, and he says, that's right, I want to bring you a message called dealing with your belief systems. <laughs> Funny thing is I had to sit there and think about the parallels of the two things, you know, in my own life, right? I'm not trying to be crude for the sake of offending anybody. I'm, it wasn't what I said, it was what he said, okay? But here's the point. Sometimes my belief systems can stop the new things that God wants to do in my life. Here at the bridge, we will always, it doesn't mean that we're right and everybody else is wrong. It's just what we believe. We will always believe that you will receive the thing that you are believing for. It's hard to receive something from God that you are not believing for before that. When we talk about belief systems, I know that that can easily offend somebody because if you come from a different church background or a different theological perspective, you might hear that and say, well, how true is that, Zach? Because aren't you, don't you know about the sovereignty of God? And don't you know about God's predestined plan? And I know where that comes from in Scripture, yes. But I also know that in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus encounters two blind men who come up to him and say, we want to be healed. And Jesus says, do you believe that I can heal you? And they said, yes. And Jesus said, then according to your faith, so be it unto you. It's possible that the way I believe that somebody else told me I'm supposed to believe might be blocking the new thing that God wants to do in my life because I'm stuck in an old way of thinking and an old way of believing. It's time to re-examine what I think and what I believe because God might be wanting to do something new in and through my life. And if I want to have a fresh relationship with God, I have to stop and take an inventory and an account of all that stuff and say, God, am I in, in step with you? Am I on the same page with you? Am I believing what your word really says? Because I need you to give me revelation. We have to make sure that we don't limit the new things that God wants to do because we're trying to contain it in old wineskins. In closing this morning, 
there's one passage of Scripture in the Old Testament that it seems like we always look at when we talk about God doing new things. If you're in a Bridge Women Connect group this term, this has been a big focus of your Connect groups throughout the last couple of months. It's the verse in Isaiah chapter 43. In verse 18 it says, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. For behold, I will do a new thing, and now it shall spring forth. And shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Can I just be really honest with you? I've heard that verse of scripture my whole life, and it feels like every new generation uses it to talk about the new thing that God is going to do in this time and in the season ahead, and and that's fine. That's fine. That's good. But I think sometimes we read that passage of scripture, and we forget about what was said right before it. Because that was verses 18 and 19 that I just read. Verse 15 says, I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. And thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters. And all of that right there is speaking to the Israelites crossing the Red Sea and the waters falling down on the Egyptian army. He who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the power, they shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like wick. And right here, God through Isaiah is speaking to the great things that he did in their history. But then right after that, he turns around in verse 18 and he says, do not remember the former things. Does that mean that what God did when he parted the Red Sea and then brought the waters down on top of the the Egyptian army, does that mean that we're supposed to forget about that and not remember and that what God did then is irrelevant now? Of course not. Our memories of what God has done in our life and the past should serve as a reminder of the good things that he still wants to do into the future. But what he's saying here is, is the way I did it then won't necessarily be the new way that I do it now. And if you were stuck on the pattern of how it's done, you might miss out on the person who is Jesus. And I've heard that passage of scripture my whole life and sometimes I have to go back to it and remind myself of what it really means. Because Isaiah says right here, he says, behold, I will do a new thing. I believe right now in the world in which we're living, God is doing a new thing in the earth. And I'm going to be really honest with you. I don't yet understand it. Because all of us are looking around right now saying, when's life going to completely come back to normal? When are things going to go back to the way that we've always known them? And the truth is, I don't know the answer to that question. But I look around and I do know that I can trust God with my future. And I look at what's happening in the church world, and I look at what's happening in our church, and I look around and I say, God, I don't understand everything. But the one thing I'm totally certain about is that God is doing a new thing. But here's the question. If I'm so stuck in an old way of doing things that I miss out on the new thing, it's possible, as this verse says, that I won't even know it. Don't get stuck on the pattern focus on the person. If I'm in step with Jesus, if I'm in his word, if I'm walking in a relationship with the Holy Spirit, my heart is open to new things that God wants to do in and through my life. I was at a conference a couple years ago and I remember hearing a guy say this. He was talking about how to grow your church and build your church. He said, listen, times change, people change, the models that we'll use to build church will always change. He says, date the model, but marry the mission. Our mission at the Bridge Church is simple. We're here to connect with God and to connect with people. And if we're staying in tune and in step with the Holy Spirit and following Jesus, not being married to a pattern, but focusing on the person, we'll be open to the new things that God wants to do in our life. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? God, I thank you that you are good. 
God, even when our life is surrounded by questions and uncertainty and insecurity, we can look to you and have such a security in our heart because we know that you are good and that you are faithful. Today we look to you, Jesus, and there are so many questions that we might be asking right now, and we don't have all of the answers, but we know that we can lean on you. God, at this time in this season of life where we look around and things don't look the way that they used to and times seem to be changing and it seems as though there's a shift happening in the world and in the church and maybe even in our own lives and families, I pray that we would have hearts that are open and in step with you to see the new things that you want to do in and through our lives. God, today we denounce the patterns that we might have been married to that give us a sense of safety and comfort. And today we focus on you, the person of Jesus, who is the point of it all. And we say, God, we choose to be flexible. We choose to bend, not compromise, but we choose to be flexible and bend so that you can do new things in and through our life. God, if there are mindsets that you want to break off of us, then we give you permission to do that. Change the way that we think. Renew our minds. God, if there are belief systems that you want to change in our life, stuff that's been handed to us that really isn't in step with your word, I pray that you would give us faith to change what we believe so that we can grow in our walk with you and see you do new things, see you pour out new wine into our life. I I pray that you would help us to examine why we do what we do and how we can best use the gifts, talents, and abilities that you have given us and that we would not limit what you want to do by our old ways of doing things. In Jesus' name. With heads bowed and eyes closed for one more moment, maybe you're here When we talk about new things, the idea of having a relationship with God seems completely new to you. Maybe you've watched from a distance and you've known about church, you've known about religion, you've known about Christianity, you've heard about God, but in all reality, you're not walking in relationship with him. Maybe that's new to you today. I would love to be the person to pray with you and invite you into a relationship with God that would change your life, not because of me, but because of what God can do in and through you. Scripture tells us that Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and nobody comes to the Father. Nobody walks into a relationship with God except through him, through Jesus, the Son. Jesus, the one who loved us so much that when God sent him, he gave his life for us. He died upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, died a death that we we deserved. And after he died, God raised him from the dead, conquering death, hell, and the grave forever so that you and I would not have to face it. That's who we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. Maybe you've never given him a chance to become the Lord of your life. Can I tell you something? He died for the opportunity. I want to pray a prayer in just a moment. If you'd like to commit your life to Christ, man, I'd be honored to pray this prayer with you. This whole room's going to pray it with you. We'll pray it right out loud. We're not going to embarrass you or put you on the spot. We're just going to give you the opportunity to make that decision for yourself. So I want to ask everybody right now, if you'd repeat these words right out loud and say, Jesus... I thank you for going to the cross for me. I believe you are the son of God. And I believe that your death was full payment for my sin. I believe that you were raised from the dead and that you conquered death for me. So today, I put my hope in you, my trust in you, my faith in you. From this day forward, I will follow you all of my life and into eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, I want you to know there's a room full of people that have made that decision at some point in their life. 
And we are so happy to welcome you to the family of God today. A couple things that we'd like to do if you made that decision to follow Christ for the very first time. We just want to give you a simple gift. It's a tool to help you walk out this journey of faith over these first few days. It's so important that you don't do this alone, that you know where you're going on this walk. So we have something we want to give you called The Next Seven Days. It's a simple book to help you start that journey. There's a couple different ways that you can get it. As soon as this service is over, we'll have prayer teams right here in the room if you're here live with us. You can walk up to one of our prayer teams. They'll be on the side walls down here on the floor of the auditorium. Just let them know that you made that decision to follow Jesus. You want to get the book. They'll give it to you. We don't need anything from you, but we're here to help in any way that we can. If you need special prayer today, you can walk up to one of our prayer teams and just say, hey, I need someone to pray with me. If you made that decision to follow Christ today, you can, uh, and you need to go quickly after service, just stop by the next seven days desk. It's right between the glass doors. Let them know you made that decision to follow Jesus. They'll give that to you. We don't need anything from you, but we're here to help however we can. Again, thank you so much for making that decision. Congratulations, and welcome to the family of God. Can we just put our hands together and welcome people into God's family today? All right, finally, last thing in our service. We just want to take a moment to kind of close out our service by worshiping God with our giving. And I want to just quickly say thank you so much for your generosity and your faithfulness in giving. We say this all the time, but we recognize that the ministry of the church goes forward because of a faithful God and faithful people. People who have seen God be faithful and generous to them. So what is our response? To be faithful and generous back to God because he's been good to us. So thank you so much for partnering with us to see to it that the gospel, the message, the mission of the bridge goes forth here in the Temecula Valley and around the world. And I also want to say that if you um, are looking for a way to give this morning, the most convenient way to give is digitally, and you can see those different ways there on the screen. Choose whichever is most convenient for you. If you're a guest with us today, please know there's never any pressure or compulsion to give. This is a free will offering. It's something that we do as a family to honor God with our tithes and also just thank him and sow seeds for our future when we give offerings as well. If you have a physical gift and you'd like to give in person, you can use one of those envelopes in the back of your seat. You can drop it at a giving station that's on either side of this first set of exit doors, or there's a giving station outside also near the kids' check-in area. Thank you again so much for your generosity. We as a team are so grateful for your partnership and your generosity, and we know that God will always honor those who put him first with their finances. So thank you very much. Hey, I hope that you've enjoyed being in church today. Anybody been blessed by the word of God today? Awesome. We love you. Have a great Sunday. Have a fantastic week, and we will see you in the house next weekend. God bless you.